This is Science Modeling Talks, a podcast featuring top modeling instructors sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. Our guest for this episode has been involved in science modeling instruction since 1998. She trained at UC Davis while working as a high school physics and mathematics teacher in Sacramento, California. In 2007, she completed her PhD at Arizona State University under the direction of Dr. David Hestinus. She then became an assistant professor of science education at ASU until 2011, when she moved to a half-time research position so she could work with the American Modeling Teachers Association as their first executive officer. In 2014, she retired from ASU to devote her full attention to AMTA. She's provided strong leadership for that organization by helping make connections that expand the influence of modeling instruction and has also been instrumental in securing grant funding that supports AMTA's efforts. Hi, my name is Colleen McGowan and I have been a modeler for 20 years plus and I was the very first charter member of the American Modeling Teachers Association. I joined the day after it was founded in 2005 at Arizona State University. Colleen, you've been teaching since 1978? That is correct. What drew you into the modeling world? What drew me into the modeling world was an email from Jane Jackson um, announcing a modeling workshop that was going to be in Davis, which was just down the road from where I was teaching. And the hook for me was that it promised the utilization of technology to learn physics. And this is something that I really wanted for my students. We had no technology in my classroom. It seemed very 19th century to me. So this was going to help me make the case that we needed to invest in some classroom technology so that students could take data like real scientists. Hmm. So it wasn't so much about the methodology as it was about getting your hands on some tech. Um, it, it was initially, and it was also um, a, a paid opportunity to learn. Um, there's, it's a real incentive when you're making, I don't know, $25,000 a year <laughs> to go um, to school to learn to do something to help you be a better teacher and get paid in the process. Mm. So um, that was really attractive too. And that was something that I did almost every summer. So I was on this trajectory to professional growth, I kind of knew where I thought I wanted to go, which was better integration of technology to support learning. And um, that was the hook for me. Wow. So you you went to a workshop and this was in uh, 98, if I remember correctly. That's correct. That is correct. And so your expectations were to get there and learn some cool stuff and also get some technology in the classroom. But what, what surprised you about that class or that workshop? I think the most surprising thing was that the technology was incidental. And the thing I valued the most by the time I was done with that workshop was the whiteboards and the conversations that we had in constructing those whiteboarded representations. It was great to be able to, to get my hands on some tech and to learn how to use it in my classroom. And the workshop came with a small grant that could be used to purchase some technology. And that was good. But I think the whiteboards and the, the discourse 
were the the big reveal for me. Um, I could hear others think for I think the very first time as a teacher. What do you mean you could hear them think? What do you mean by that? When you work with others to co-create a representation, you have to talk. You have to talk about what you think is going on, how it should be represented, what the things you write down on a whiteboard mean. You have to talk. And so in student mode in that workshop, um, I was talking with other teachers and we were collaboratively sense-making and I could hear that happening. And then when I got to listen to what other groups were doing and hear them collaboratively sense-making, I realized that this is what I would be able to do in my own classroom. I could know what my students were thinking by listening to them. You mentioned the, that the whiteboards were a part of that discovery for you. What, can you explain that a little bit more? Yes. Well, whiteboards are, are pretty low tech. They're, um, I think, 24 by 32 inch erasable whiteboards that are large enough for multiple people to write on at the same time. Let's say a group of three people can write on them at the same time. So your thinking can evolve as you're talking. You can sketch what you're thinking. It's better than gesturing when you talk, especially when you talk about physical things. If you can make little drawings or if you can make a graph or make a a mathematical expression to represent what you're trying to convey, it's just much more complete communication. And the fact that you have that conversation with your teammates as you're building your whiteboard reveals how you are thinking about the the conceptual model you're representing. I kind of scanned a bit of your doctoral dissertation. Did you really? Wow. <laughs> Just scanned. Okay. And the one thing that popped out to me was how you integrated the use of whiteboarding, as you were just talking about. Yeah. And so you've really focused on or, or done some deep dive into the whiteboarding idea. I have. Do you have any other have. key insights that you want to share that you picked up during that study? The, my biggest insight, I think, in terms of practicality for a teacher is that um, we tend to be zoomed in on the details when we are doing problems or or tackling anything. And it's very necessary for us as teachers to zoom out to the big picture and to help our students learn how to do the same. Students will also live in that tiny zoomed in space and lose track of what it is they're actually trying to, to figure out in the big world. And it becomes the teacher's job to zoom them back out to the model to see, okay, what am I working on here? What is the effect of what I'm doing? On the whole system. How did your uh, administration and your colleagues respond to the way you started teaching after finding this new methodology? Other than uh, my asking for whiteboards when I returned to school and being more interested in those than actually the technology that I had been lobbying for, I don't think they noticed right away. I think 
the biggest shift was students. When I started teaching with modeling, I was teaching ninth graders in a, in a course called Conceptual Physics, and I was teaching 11th and 12th graders in Honors Physics. There were striking differences between the two groups. The students that had me for Honors Physics had had me two years prior for Conceptual Physics because we were a physics first school. And they felt like the rules of the game in my classroom had changed. And there was some pushback. But um, I think the overwhelming response was that the ninth graders who were starting high school and they were up for something new, they loved it. They were so excited to be discovering that knowledge resided in their peers and not just the teacher. That doing things themselves and figuring things out themselves, figuring them out together, was what moved the class forward. So I think if anybody heard about it, they also heard about it from um, excited girls. I taught at a girls' Catholic high school, going home and telling their parents, wow, this physics is great. And honestly, who expects that, right? <laughs> right. Um, what parent expects their daughter to come home um, their 14-year-old daughter to come home and say, physics is awesome. I love this. <laughs> That's wonderful. You mentioned um, that the the students would see that there was knowledge and something they could learn from their peers, not just the teacher. That's an interesting observation. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that idea? Sure. If you've seen a modeling classroom, you know that the teacher shows them something and then gives them a task to do and the students work in small groups to do this task and to figure out how to make sense of it. Once they have done what they can in their group and they come together with their whiteboarded findings and talk to the entire class, the teacher doesn't tell them anything. The teacher guides the conversation with strategic questioning. And in order for something to happen in the classroom, it has to come from students. So this is what makes modeling difficult to learn how to do as a teacher, to manage by indirection. But when you can do it successfully, students realize that they don't have to wait for the teacher to tell them the answer they can figure out the answer themselves. They also figure out that even though they may not have been able to figure out that answer themselves for homework, doing a worksheet, that when they sit down with their group of two other students, that inevitably the three of them can figure it out themselves. Mm. Wow. So that's actually very empowering, I think, mm -hmm. for, for any student, but um, it was terrifically empowering for these girls and um, it was delightful. It seems like it would also deepen their learning. Yes. And, their Ret and retention. And, and their enjoyment, too, mm -hmm. of the learning. Um, right. There was a huge jump in enrollment in science courses following the, um, the switch to physics first and the introduction of modeling instruction. So those two things happened pretty close together. And um, we went from two-thirds of the student body taking a science course in any given year 
to 120% of the student body taking a science course in any given year. Wow. Which means that juniors and seniors, some of them were taking two sciences because they had spaces in their electives. You know, you've twice now mentioned the term physics first. Yes. And uh, some of our listeners may not know what that is referring to and why it's important. Can you expound on that a little? Sure. Um, Physics first is a science sequence in which you begin high school, ninth grade, with physics, an algebra-based physics course, and then this is followed by chemistry, and then um, you take a course in biology, uh, sometimes called capstone biology, that is very meaty. Um, You can do really good cellular physiology and biochemistry if you've already had a year of chemistry before you take biology, rather than the the traditional um, sequence which would put biology first and you would spend your first, oh, nine weeks perhaps of biology learning enough about carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen to get along for the rest of the year. So, so it's a sequence that makes good sense, and it's becoming more popular. I was just going to ask you that. How well received is that kind of sequencing in the coursework over the high school years? Um, it's a definite advantage for students who have an interest in the STEM disciplines. Um, it's pretty well documented to um, increase um, interest in STEM course taking beyond high school or majoring in one of the STEM majors. And we did see that at at the high school where I taught, the girls' Catholic high school where I taught. We had, um, I did a poll in in the early 90s, and we had about um, 15% of students who graduated majoring in in math, science, engineering. Um, And by the time I I left in 2001, we had um, over 40%. Wow. So... Um, there's a good correlation to more science course taking and more um, science and engineering majoring. So I know you have an opinion about the integration of math and science, uh, which is a little different approach than traditional as well. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I um, actually had the opportunity when I left Sacramento to go to um, Phoenix and begin my Ph.D., Um, I went to teach at a brand new high school. It was a Jewish high school, and it was very small. We had 22 students in that first year, 18 freshmen and four sophomores. And their vision was for a physics-first curriculum that integrated the learning of mathematics and science. So if you teach ninth grade physics, you teach algebra. You can't get around it. Hmm. In fact, um, there was a a little presentation as I was leaving the school at the final assembly, the math department actually gave me a little certificate that gave me permission to teach slope intercept form prior to November, which is when they taught it. Hmm. I would teach it in the second week of September and they would always fuss at me because that's a topic that they weren't supposed to get to in algebra until November. And I felt like I was doing them a favor. Uh, you know, there, there it is. You don't have to worry about that. They've already got that. You can just move right along. But it took them years to get over it. They finally did. And then when I, when I left and went to this school in Phoenix, I had an opportunity to design a curriculum 
where what you learned in one subject supported and aligned perfectly with what you were learning in the other. And so I had a, a two-hour block of time with my students um, every day, and um, we did physics and algebra together. And, um, and students would occasionally come in and they'd say, so what are we doing today, physics or math? And I'd say, yep. <laughs> yep. Do you, do you think other modelers are adopting that idea of the integration of the two in their classrooms? Is that, how is that? Is it propagating, you know? Um, I think there have been a few that have done it, but the biggest barrier really is, is scheduling. Hmm. Um, you almost have to be at a school that has embraced this as a plan either for a year so maybe you just do it in freshman year and you integrate the algebra and the science course that they're taking. And that's doable schedule-wise. Or you, can, you could do it across several years. But um, if you don't have an administration that is going to manage the scheduling problem, um, it's going to be rare. Sure. Yeah. It, it seems like it might challenge because I know in one year you've got a lot of content to get through with the kids. And by integrating another set of coursework, if you will, does it interfere with getting all the physics stuff taken care of? Um, no, it doesn't. Um, actually, if you are learning a concept that is useful in both subjects, um, you don't have to learn it twice. You learn it once. Right. And one of the nice things about learning algebraic functions in physics is that it's less of an abstraction than it is in mathematics. Functions are something that we, that we learn, f of x equals x squared plus uh, 5 or whatever, and you learn to write it, but you don't know what it is. But when you write that function in physics, x of t equals vt plus x naught, every one of those things has a conceptual identity. So it's more concrete. I, I taught calculus and AP physics together as well. Wow. So that's another place where it works out really well. Um, but I did not have them in the same class period for two hours the way I did with the, the ninth graders. I had first period calculus and then I had, I think, fourth period physics or something. But since I had the same kids, I think they learned their calculus better because they had something visualizable to attach these mathematical expressions to. You had a little bit of a unique experience because now, did you ever teach in a public school or were were both the girls' school and the Jewish school, they were private schools, I assume? Right, right, they were. I taught in a public school in Minot, North Dakota in the late 70s. Um, and um, I taught in a public school in Bridgeport, California. Um, that was a middle school. Mm. So here's the, you know, here's the big reveal. In those days, I was a biology teacher. Ah, <laughs> interesting. I, I mean, you, if you teach in a small enough school, you're going to teach just about anything. And sure. at the um, Bridgeport Elementary School, the town of Bridgeport had 300 people. And so the, the school, which served two towns, actually, um, had a total of, of uh, 100 students in K through 8. I taught 6th, 7th, and 8th grade math. 6th, 7th, and 8th grade science, and music. Huh. So I guess my question is, 
there's a lot of people who are working in the modeling approach. Do you have any advice for how they can deal with administrators that just don't quite get it? I think actually the very best way to deal with administrators is to get them to come and be in your classroom because when they can spend some time there and just watch the kids and listen to the kids and just soak up the energy in the room and see the affect of those students, they will be completely sold. Um, Today, so many administrators dip in and out of classrooms. They watch for five or 10 minutes and they don't get a real sense of what's going on. They're busy ticking boxes on a checklist of standards or performance expectations. And it's really a shame that they don't know what kind of learning is happening in their classrooms. It's so focused on accountability. If they could relax and take a breath and listen or even sit down at a table with kids and ask them what's going on. Every, in every case where that has happened that I know of, the administrators have become huge fans. If a teacher is going to invite an administrator to come in and observe, is there a certain part of the week or the, you know, you have your labs and you have not lectures, but you have different uh, learning sessions. Is there one that you think is good with influencing a, an administrator? Um, well, don't come in on test day. <laughs> um, you know, that's going to be pretty boring. But um, anytime they're doing a lab mm-hmm. and anytime they're doing whiteboarding, whether they're doing whiteboarding in small groups or whether they're having a whole group board meeting and just everyone's talking, um, I was a big proponent of the open door policy. Anybody could come into my classroom at any time and listen and watch and interact if they wanted to, as long as they weren't disruptive. I had parents. I had administrators. It was fine. And I, I think there's almost no bad time to come into a modeling classroom because you don't have you don't lecture. You don't have them sitting there doing seat work. The only time they do seat work is when they're taking a test. So... Pretty much any time, but biggest bang for the buck, small group whiteboarding. Ah. When, when kids are working on something with their little team and you can walk around and you can listen to their conversations, that's my favorite time. Yeah, I would think that an administrator would derive some satisfaction from that. So you're out and about and uh, you get on an elevator and you have 30 seconds, you know, the elevator speech idea. Mm-hmm. What would you say to somebody who just goes, oh, you're a teacher? And they hear about modeling and they say, well, what is modeling or what's modeling instruction? What's your, what's your elevator speech for that? You know, this is something that I teach a leader training seminar every summer. And I make my leader training participants work up an elevator speech. <laughs> and yet I never give them mine. So you've got me on the spot now. Um, Modeling instruction is an extremely effective method of helping students learn science or any other subject by building, testing, refining, and applying the fundamental conceptual models of that discipline. There is no lecture. It's all activity, lab, task-driven. 
it's all collaborative sense-making. It's teacher as guide on the side, not sage on the stage. Hmm. (laughs) I like that. It's good. Now, that last bit is Larry's. So, stolen from Larry Dukerich, guide on the side, not sage on the stage. (laughs) That's awesome. Pretty brilliant, actually. Well, uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because... You've been deeply involved with AMPTA for some time now, and in your introduction, you mentioned that you were the original charter member of AMPTA. So tell us a little bit of the history of how it came to be. Well, I was not there at dinner the night that AMTA was created by about a dozen modelers um, at Los Dos Amigos restaurant in um, Phoenix at at the foot of South Mountain. And they worked well into the night. Um, around the table, figuring out how they would keep modeling alive now that the last of the grants was expiring. There were four big grants that David Hestinus got to support the construction and the refinement and the dissemination of modeling instruction. And the last of those expired in 2005. A lot of teachers that were there that summer felt um, anxiety I think, and a little bit of sadness that this was probably going to go away. Modeling instruction was going to go away in the same way that many other wonderful reform programs had gone away Mm. because there was no more National Science Foundation funding. And one thing that NSF does not do for programs that it launches is require them to become self-sustaining. And perhaps even support the development of a business model that is sustainable. So here are a bunch of teachers thinking, oh no, there's no more money for modeling instruction. I guess that's it for workshops. But a few said, no way, we're not going to let this happen. And they decided, we'll just take it on. You know, we're smart teachers. We've got a network. We know each other. We're willing to put in some sweat equity. Let's figure out what it's going to take to um, create a professional association. So they borrowed and uh, revised the bylaws from AAPT and they settled on a dues structure and they went around the table and said, well, you know, I'll be secretary, I'll be treasurer, I'll be president, whatever, and volunteered for offices. And they came back very excited the next day to my class. I had a class called um, Leadership Workshop. At ASU? At ASU. Um, it was one unit class that everybody in the master's program, the Master of Natural Science in Physics Teaching, had to take in order to plan their action research. And they just could barely contain themselves. They were so excited. <laughs> um, and bleary-eyed from staying up till all hours of the morning. But... Um, It just sounded so great. I pulled out my checkbook and I wrote my check for $25, which is what they were charging for. (laughs) Um, That was their special deal for life membership in that first year. Um, It was um, $25 for membership, for any membership. And if you joined in the first year, if you were a charter member, you got it for $25, life membership. So I wrote my $25 check. It's $400 today. Yeah. For a lifetime membership? For a lifetime membership. Oh, okay. It's still well, that's, a steal of a deal when a you deal. consider what it would cost for a life membership in AAPT yeah, or some of the other organizations for teachers. So it's, it's, a, it's a great deal, but it's a great community. When I introduced you uh, at the beginning of this episode, uh, 
I mentioned that you became the the first executive officer I did. with AMTA in 2011, I believe, right? I did. It yeah. was May of 2011, and it, it coincided with a, a moment in my professional life in which I felt that I really needed to make a change. After I graduated, I got a tenure-track position at Arizona State um, in one of the four education colleges. At the time, there were four education schools at ASU. It's a, it's a really big college. It has 75,000 students. So they had a special school that was just STEM education, um, secondary STEM education. So I was there with my um, other science ed folks and math ed folks, and they closed our college because of the recession. Mm. They disestablished it. I remember learning the word anti-disestablishmentarianism <laughs> yeah. when I was young. Uh, yeah. This is like the longest word in the dictionary. Yeah. And I did not know what disestablishment was until my college was disestablished. So we were folded into uh, one big college, um, and the dean of our college had no use for secondary science and math education. She felt it was a niche market, and that elementary ed was where the money is, and that's where she wanted to focus her time and attention. She was an early education person, and um, that was that was her her thing. Um, I, in the short time that I was in that um, the science and math teacher prep college, in the short time I was there, I got a grant to create a master of natural science program for middle school STEM. That mm. was no big surprise, based on modeling instruction. The difference in this program was that it integrated the teaching of science and math in all of its courses. And half of the teachers in the program were math teachers and the other half were science teachers. So she had no use for this program and I finally decided I I just don't wanna play politics here. And my husband, God bless him, said to me, do what makes you happy. So I said, well, I think what would make me happy is giving AMTA the launch that it really needs to make itself sustainable. Mm. I think I would like to resign my tenure track and just be a, a research scientist. That's, that's code for I'm not on hard money at the university. I'm just on grant funding. And just do that work and spend the rest of my time trying to build up AMTA. So he said, well, then go for it. So I went to the board meeting, which was, I think, maybe a few days later. And I offered my services as executive officer for up to five years or until AMTA could afford to pay me a salary. And they said yes. (laughs) That's awesome. Did we ever explain that AMTA is American Modeling Teachers Association? We may not have said that, but AMT is American Modeling Teachers Association. Yeah. It's it's something that people that, that is occasionally misunderstood unless you tell someone you're a science teacher and then tell them you uh, work for AMTA. They think that the modeling you're talking about is like fashion. Yep. On a runway. Yeah. <laughs> so If they know you're, I mean, if you lead with, I'm a physics teacher, and I I work at the American Modeling Teachers Association, they assume then that it has something to do with science education. Yeah. Well, this podcast is is designed to support the efforts of AMTA, but that's why I call the podcast Science Modeling Talks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So at least gives a little clue there, you know. So um, how many members are there today with AMTA? Um, there are about 2,500 oh. members of AMTA, and um, 
once somebody was answering the telephone, minding the store, and we put up a new website, everybody got involved. And uh, membership grew pretty rapidly for, I'd say, four years, four or five years, something like that. It is beginning to level off now, and we have an inkling of why that may be. Um, it's sort of like public television. You don't have to donate in order to benefit from it. Right. I yeah. mean, there's a million reasons that people can't make a donation or, or renew their membership. Mm-hmm. Membership's $75 now. And maybe you don't have $75 when the month your membership expires. And mm-hmm. maybe you don't need to go to the website and download anything or register for anything. And so you're just going to wait until you need to do something before you pay that membership fee. Sure. Just fiscal realities. Right. And we don't cut people off. (laughs) We don't stop talking to them. We don't um, unsubscribe them from the listserv. Um, We're we're a community. There's 12,500 people on the listserv. And there's only 2,500 members. So, you know, do the math. Where did did those 12,000 come from? Um, Workshops. We've had in excess of 12,500 teachers go through modeling workshops in the course of 20 years. We have about 1,000 every summer now. Hmm. Um, there are a number of people who come back for new workshops. Um, we're counting on that because um, we just launched a new one, astronomy modeling, oh. um, that's going to be new this summer, um, and it's going to be in Louisville. And I think the people who come will probably already have attended a, a chemistry or a physics workshop, but they also teach astronomy, and they want to see how to do it the modeling way. Awesome. So tell me what keeps you going, what your motivation is for your investment of time and effort with AMTA. I I think my motivation at this point in time is to make sure that modeling instruction is sustainable for the long term. We still struggle. We continue to grow. New things have happened. We got a National Science Foundation grant this year. It took us 12 years to get a National Science Foundation grant. Um, You have to meet certain accounting worthiness tests. We got it. And so now that we have one, um, it will be easier to get the next one. But they don't just give you money. You you make a proposal and then you have to do what it was that you proposed, which is a lot of work. And that's what you spend the money on. So there's a little bit of overhead for AMTA in that. But, you know, we're not business people. We're teachers. <laughs> and, you know, we, we learn a lot of business stuff. I've learned a tremendous amount of business stuff by um, being the, the executive officer for AMTA and, and now being the senior fellow. But I think my current role as senior fellow is nominally research and development. And um, my, my personal goal is to... Um, make AMTA sturdy and sustainable. That's really wonderful to hear. And I, I know uh, that's going to encourage others to stand alongside, because especially those who recognize how powerful it is and, and uh, how meaningful it has been in their lives as teachers and also how meaningful it is in the lives of the students that are being taught. Yes. That's really great. It's, you know, it's about community. It really is uh, mostly about community. Um, and I think we, we know from um, studying how modeling instruction works that um, that collaborative aspect of learning really makes it happen. And AMTA has three pillars. 
One is professional development. One is curriculum resources that support the teaching of modeling instruction. And the third is community. And I, I really think the community pillar is probably the most important. It's the most significant in terms of the persistence of modeling as a method of teaching. Plenty of other programs have come and gone. Modeling has stuck. What makes it sticky? It's the community. That's awesome. We take care of each other. So if there are listeners to this podcast that have not been exposed to AMPTA or to science modeling instruction, what would you say to encourage them to investigate the world of science modeling? I think anyone who is committed to the profession of teaching and teaching science in particular is also committed to being a better teacher. And modeling instruction is a way of teaching that will help you be the very best teacher you can be. Uh, wouldn't you like to be able to hear your students think? Maybe you can already do that. Wouldn't you like to give them really powerful thinking tools? That's what models are. Imagine, we're all tool users. We all use tools all the time. Most of the tools we use are tools that we bought and we sort of know how to use. Very few of us are really expert users of all the tools we own. Now think about models. If you build it yourself, you really know how to use that tool. You know how it works. You know what it's good for. You know how to apply it to situations. You know when it's the right tool for the job. If you want to give your students tools for thinking, really powerful tools for thinking, then modeling is your ticket. Wow, that was awesome. Okay. It was a joy talking with you, too. Well, thank you very much. It was, it was not hard or scary. No, you're just talking from your heart. I mean, it's not like preparing some dissertation or anything. <laughs> uh, don't talk to me about that. Oh, my gosh. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks. Head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and type our guest name in the search box. The episode page will pop right up. There you'll find any extra content that was mentioned during this interview. So, until next time, keep striving for excellence in the classroom.